Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Crisscrossing Nashville are thousands of miles of urban streams that we see near our homes and on our way to work or school. These urban streams are often highly visible and open people's eyes to the beauty and wonder of water. But urban streams also face water quality challenges as they flow through densely populated urban areas. In this River Talk, we hear from Mary Bruce and Michael Hunt with the Metro Water Services about the urban stream syndrome, along with some of the opportunities to make an improvement in our urban waters. Then we'll chat with Gray Perry and Will Kaplanor with the Cumberland River Compact about a current restoration project in the Browns Creek watershed and how we use science and data to inform our innovative restoration work. Hi, I'm Mary Bruce. I'm the Watershed Stewardship Coordinator for Metro Water, and I work in the Watershed Group. Um, We are responsible for all of the monitoring requirements associated with our permit that TDEC issues. And so we monitor all streams that are on the 303D list. This is a list that TDEC issues every other year, and it lists all of the streams that have impairments within the state of Tennessee. And so we're responsible for all of those streams uh, within Nashville. And um, there's a series of requirements depending on the impairment. And so we do all sorts of things, um, including chemical, bacteriological, biological monitoring. Um, We also do visual stream assessments where we go and look at the corridors we walk along the streams or in certain instances we get in boats and uh, float the the streams and look for ways to improve the corridor or we also find um, occasionally we find illicit discharges or uh, sewer repairs that need to be made and so it gets us out to the watershed and looks for the issues so that we can make those improvements you know through various programs. Our goal overall in the Watershed Group is just improving water quality and um, helping Nashvilleians be better stewards of the environment. Well, my name is Michael Hunt. I'm a utility services manager with Metro Water Services, and I serve as the manager of the MPDS office group. Uh, Mary's group is a part of that office, and our office endeavors to serve uh, several functions to improve water quality in general watershed health. Mary obviously uh, has her group out in the field looking at waterway issues, doing stream walks, sampling, just general vis- visual assessments. But we also have some other sections within our office that perform other duties relating to watershed health and general water quality. We have a group called the permit section, and that group works toward making sure Metro fulfills its obligations with its MPDS permit with the state and EPA. And that permit requires Metro to create various programs and policies to eliminate to the maximum extent practicable the introduction of pollutants into our stormwater runoff. So some of the things that that group does is investigate illicit discharge requests. If someone sees a soapy or discolored uh, flow going into a storm sewer of their stream, they'll investigate that. They also do certain industrial site inspections to make sure those sites aren't losing material from their sites to our rivers and streams and storm sewer systems. They do certain public education activities. So Uh, And that is a huge part of watershed's uh, stewardship because uh, people recognizing what the issues are and making folks like ourselves aware where we can go out and take action is a big part 
of our program. That group also has several other uh, functions that they fulfill. They actually go out and look at the storm sewer system to make sure systematically that there aren't pollutants uh, being introduced to it, doing reporting and things of that nature to make sure we're doing what we are required to do from a regulatory perspective for the state and EPA. One of the, the main things that that group has been endeavoring to do of late is inspect and make sure our stormwater control measures on various sites are being maintained. That is a big issue here in Metro because as development goes in, they're required to build and install certain stormwater control measures like uh, detention ponds, bioretention, things that serve to either detain or treat stormwater runoff from those respective sites. And it's imperative that those get maintained. So that group has been doing a lot of work in that area. We have almost 6,000 of those in place in Metro Nashville, Davidson County. So that's probably one of the bigger program elements that we've been doing right now. So again, you have the watershed group, the permit group that I just mentioned, and we also have a grading permit inspection group. Uh, that group is working to make sure that our permitted development sites in Metro that uh, right now we have 800 plus of those uh, that they are being built per plan and that they do have erosion prevention and sediment control measures installed to prevent the loss of sediment from those sites. So that's a very big program. Uh, those folks make sure those sites are built per plan and are involved all the way from the time the project starts until they make certain sign-offs at the end of the project once they verify that the sites have done what they were required to do on the sites. A somewhat new group and a activity that the compact knows a lot about is our new Metro Tree Initiative, and that's also within the MPDS office. And our goal there, given the benefits of trees and tree canopy to stormwater runoff, is to facilitate the upkeep in addition to Metro's general tree canopy. Trees are very, very good for stormwater. Uh, I think the general stat is something like in a treed area, only about 5% of the annual runoff that falls on that area will actually leave the site. Whereas on a paved surface, you're looking at probably anywhere from 95 to 99% of annual runoff would leave the site. So, and in addition to stormwater benefits, obviously trees have various other benefits for a community. So, uh, but that's another activity that is being performed in our office. One other activity that some folks may not know is in the NPDS office at Metro Water Services is uh, the Davidson County Soil Conservation District is located in the NPDS office. And that has been a good uh, coordination effort uh, when that group came over to be within our office a couple, three years ago, because they work with agricultural interest in the county to perform certain projects and activity and educational efforts for that community to understand the potential impacts to our rivers and streams from their activity. So uh, we've gotten a lot of good synergy from that group. And uh, so uh, I say all of that just to say there is a lot of activity going on at the NPDS office, a lot of things that we're doing to try to improve our general watershed health. We just hope to uh, be looking to do bigger and better things into the future. Great. Thanks for that overview. Yeah, you all do a lot of a lot of work in a lot of different areas that people might not always see or be familiar with. And here in Nashville, we're lucky to have the Cumberland River right downtown, and that's the waterway that probably most Nashvillians know. But there are also many urban streams that crisscross our city. What makes Nashville's urban streams unique? I think that people move to Nashville and People that live here have always loved how green and beautiful it is. We're lucky to have so many parks in Metro Nashville. One of the things that our parks has done is uh, put in so many miles, lots and lots of miles of greenways, which many of these greenways are adjacent to our streams. And uh, so I think that that gives people access, at least visually, to the streams. And then in many cases, they actually have provided access for boaters and, um, and you know, other places that people can recreate. Um, so I think that creating that connectivity between where people live and, and the creeks gives 
uh, ownership and stewardship to the people that live here. And also when people visit, they notice that and they, you know, I think that that's a unique thing about Nashville is how beautiful it is. Um, we're lucky to have 2,800 miles of, of stream roughly. And so um, that's quite a bit and it, it makes, you know, our job important because it's so widespread and we have, you know, lots of area to cover and to make sure that all of those, those waters are being looked at and there aren't any issues. Some of the other things that we, we find in Nashville, I think that make it unique is that we have bald eagles on the Cumberland River, which wasn't always the case. I think that we went through a period of time where we didn't have that. And so seeing those come around and you can relate that with uh, improved water quality along the Cumberland. And also we see things like uh, river otters and great blue herons. And so, um, you know, those are indicators that we have, we do have some high quality waters and, and so wildlife goes along with the aquatic life and that sort of ecology. So I think that those are important things that make Nashville unique, uh, maybe more, more than other urban areas. And if I might add to what, uh, what Mary discussed, maybe a more physical observation as far as Metro Nashville. Obviously, Metro Nashville is a municipal government. It's a city county government. So we're a large area to begin with. In the history that had Nashville become Nashville uh, on the Cumberland River, the Cumberland River sort of cuts Metro Nashville in two. So it runs roughly through the middle of the county. And, and one of the things that uh, comes from that is that we have several rather large rivers that come in from generally the north and the south that feed into the Cumberland. And what that causes or that, that results in us having several good larger uh, streams in Metro Nashville too. So as Mary mentioned, we have a lot of stream miles here in Metro Nashville and a lot of larger stream miles and that just contributes to the recreational activities. Um, it also contributes to some other uh, regulatory elements, uh, floodplain regulations, and trying to uh, protect those areas that are prone for flooding. But uh, I think suffice it to say, Metro is certainly blessed with streams and water resources. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the, you know, the recreation, the biodiversity, the, you know, abundance of water that we do have here and that the bald eagle down the Cumberland River, I know it's been sighted in the past few weeks and I'm, I live close to the river and have yet to see it, but I have my eyes peeled like every day, hoping that I, I will be lucky enough to see that those bald eagles. And so when we think about urban streams and a lot of the issues that come with urban streams, they're kind of grouped into something called the urban stream syndrome. Could you describe what that is for urban, urban waterways? Sure. Uh, so an urban stream syndrome is, uh, what's well, a complex issue it has to do with the increased impervious area that you get in a municipal environment. And so when you have increased impervious, you think of uh, hydrology changing in a way where when it rains, streams become what we would call flashier. And so you get flash flooding and um, that there's a hydrograph, which when it rains, you know, the, the flow goes up. Well, in an urban envir environment, that hydrograph goes up quicker. And so um, that hydrology changes. We have a lot more inputs um, from roadways and different industrial and other sites where you have, wouldn't necessarily have that in a natural environment. And so um, all of these different inputs into the watershed creates an imbalance where you know, uh, we have a decreased biodiversity and in the stream we see an increase in tolerant species of benthic organisms and, and also uh, aquatic, other aquatic life, uh, fish and whatnot. And so I think that probably what you would see uh, more in urban and also like even not necessarily like in a densely urban, but you start to see it just even where you have more people living in like a suburb, suburban, you see uh, 
more yard and uh, fertilizers being used that where you're getting more nutrients inputted into the watershed and we see eutrophication from that. So that's where nitrogen and phosphorus is being put on people's yards. It's also uh, often in detergents and that kind of household products. And so these nutrients are being washed ultimately being washed into the streams and that creates algal blooms and and those algal blooms can be depleting the oxygen in the stream and so um, obviously oxygen is important to the uh, the life of the stream and so I think that that's something also that you associate with that urban stream syndrome. We definitely have programs in place and education Uh, programs. Uh, I know that also the Cumberland River Compact does as well. And just to get the word out and to make sure that that people are mindful of the effects of these things. It's not just to make your grass green, um, but you do if you do it in a way that you can also be a good steward of the environment and make sure that that fertilizer stays on site and doesn't end up, you know, in your nearby storm ditch and, and creek. So that's an important message to get out. I think when I think of urban stream syndrome, one of the things that comes to my mind in having looked at various streams across the state of Tennessee and elsewhere is that sometimes in maybe not so urban areas, you'll see streams that are impaired uh, for a certain activity or for a certain site. And and that is uh, to me much different. That's kind of the opposite of the urban stream syndrome Uh, In those cases, you generally know what the pollutant of concern is and you have an idea of how best to go about uh, remedying that. This urban stream syndrome manifests itself from the fact that when you get into urban areas, there are just a lot of activities going on. And generally, there's been a lot of historical development that has in the past before different types of permits uh, serve to impact the stream in one way or the other, maybe serve to move it, straighten it out, uh, whatever the case. But the bottom line is, whereas you might look at one stream in another part of the state and say, oh, I know that's what the reason it's somewhat impaired. When you get in an urban stream, that's a lot more difficult because you may have more than one uh, particular impact and there may be a synergistic effect. So it becomes a little bit more difficult. And I know for our program, what we try to do is have general holistic programs in several areas to try to deal with all of those potential impacts. Uh, Some of those impacts can be fiscal, like Mary talked about, you know, in the summer, let's say pavement gets hot, the runoff uh, that leaves that pavement goes into our stream, has a thermal impact potential then sediments, chemicals, whatnot, washing off. Those are a different set of impacts. So um, just various things that that are unique in urban areas as it relates to their streams. Uh, I don't think that it means that it's a lost cause, but I do think that in those types of situations, you have to look at things differently and try to have more of a widespread or throw a wider net, so to speak to try to get a handle on all the inputs that could be coming into the stream, potentially impacting it. Yeah, absolutely. All of those different impacts in our urban waterways from fertilizer to thermal pollution, that increase in impermeable space. And the challenges that you all have described for urban stream syndrome are, you know, applicable to many urban areas. Are there big challenges that we face here in urban Nashville or what are some of our biggest challenges? If we could make Nashvilleians more mindful of where their trash goes and somehow get get people to help with that problem. We have a, and it was obvious last week, it's, it's actually timely when we had the flood, how much trash was in the streams and it's been in the news this week. And so I think that uh, increasing awareness and somehow trying to, to find uh a way to to get a grip on that that issue would be, uh, I think, what makes Nashville maybe more unique than in other areas. As you travel around the country, uh, you don't necessarily see that as much. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that makes Nashville unique, and we've kind of already mentioned it, is just how many miles we have. And and if you can think about how remote some of these streams are, I mean, they're they're very visual in areas, but then. 
Um, there's, there's large stretches that we actually walk and you don't, no one sees them because they're, you know, between they're, they're heavily wooded or they're between two different corridors. And, and so we do, we are able to locate different sources of pollution at times. And then you got to think that there's definitely miles that haven't been seen or accessed. And so, um, we do our best to get out to those, but, you know, I think that that is a challenge in that we have so many different uh, land uses in Nashville and we still have remote areas in Nashville that haven't, haven't been developed. So I think that, um, you know, we're looking at all different kinds of landscapes and land uses uh, across the city. Flooding in all urban environments is a, is an issue. So I think that, um, Lately, it feels unique to Nashville because we just had an event. Michael might want to expand on that a little bit more. Obviously, flooding has always been an issue on the Cumberland, and to that extent, whatever um, trash or debris or refuse is able to find its way in the stream would theoretically find its way through Nashville. Um, I guess one of the challenges that I wanted to mention uh, across all urban streams relates to the ongoing need for oversight. Uh, we have about 20 years of data at this point relating to the calls and concerns that have come into our office. And in the initial days of our program, some of the calls were pretty significant. It might have related to cross connections or just outright dumping into the storm sewer system. But today, as we get calls, the calls are much less serious. Um, and that's good on a couple of fronts. One, it tells us that our public education is getting better. People know who to report things to, but also that the issues aren't as significant as they were because we have resolved literally thousands of issues over the last 20 years um, that have helped taking those issues away. But that said, and Mary's group is a prime example of this, with all the activity in an urban area, you always have to be vigilant. Uh, as we go out and look at these streams, oftentimes we will find issues that maybe weren't issues a week ago. And some piece of machinery has broken down or a pump has start, stopped working or somebody's plumbing has had an issue. And what was fine a week ago now uh, is something that we need to look at and have something done about. So uh, overall, even as we're trending better, I feel in Nashville looking at the data, I think it, we still have to be vigilant because given that urban activity, there is always that ongoing risk that something uh, even inadvertently may go wrong that we need to look into and may resolve. Yeah, it's definitely an ongoing effort. It's a work that is never totally complete. Once you finish one project, you're on to the next. And something that both of you all were talking about, which I think is kind of interesting, Michael, you were saying in these more rural areas, it might be easier to identify a source of pollution. And then Mary, you were also saying, well, sometimes these areas that are more remote, they're harder to get to. So are there water quality issues that are maybe easier to address in urban areas because they're more accessible or um, versus more remote areas where it's harder to get out to, to really even see that there's an issue? Like Michael, you're saying you've got all these eyes in urban areas that are able to yeah. report to you all versus maybe some issues that are harder to identify. Well, that, that's really the first thing that comes to mind to me is the fact in Metro at this point, given the fact we have all of these urban streams, we get a lot of reports from citizens when they see something amiss, particularly in a stream. Uh, a lot of folks have the wherewithal to see a stream. They know what it generally looks like. And as soon as, you know, it gets a little murkiness to it or gets discolored in any way, we get calls. So I think from that perspective, it is a positive in that it's much more likely to get seen and reported in an area where there are a lot of people getting eyes on the stream, as opposed to somewhere if it is hidden and no one is apt to see it for, for days or weeks. Yeah, I was thinking uh, when you asked that question about how um, in an urban environment, Obviously, the landscape changes in, in Nashville. We've certainly seen that tremendously in the last 20 years. And so in 
in a way that would seem like it would be detrimental, but when we have redevelopment now, we have low impact development going into these reconstruction areas, redevelopment areas. And I think that we are able to put in some green infrastructure and some good practices now that, that make us in, uh, good stewards of, of our watersheds and help address some of the issues that we've had chronically. Now you think about like in a rural environment, those landscapes don't change. And so, uh, and especially like in agriculture and that sort of thing, they, there are practices and, and they do work, but I think that you don't see that you know, change in land use. We've, uh, we've had some success with, you know, getting regulations put in for green infrastructure and low impact development. And so uh, increasing buffers along streams comes to mind where that was not necessarily the case. And so now we can increase that stream corridor width and uh, you increase habitat, you uh, increase infiltration and all of those things that help bring that balance back into the watershed and uh, increase the biodiversity within the stream corridor, which is really uh, a big goal of ours in addressing water quality issues. It's difficult in a way because we're growing so rapidly, but you know, how can we use that to our advantage? And so yeah, absolutely. I love that idea, Mary, of the potential for redevelopment to be a good thing in some ways. I see it. Um, I live near Gallatin. And so there's a lot of redevelopment happening up and down Gallatin. And, you know, some of it might not be what I would want in that place, but you're taking maybe a parking lot and now it's a building, but there's rain gardens. And so I know that that is now better than a, you know, 2000 square foot parking lot that was just creating a lot of runoff. And so I think people start to see those things when they go to a new grocery store, they go to, you know, a new building and notice, hey, there's, there's something different here. And um, understanding how that can actually be a good tool in our tool belts to addressing urban stream issues. And you all have mentioned a few of the things that the city has done and continues to do from tree plantings to green infrastructure. Um, to address these challenges. What are some of the programs that you all are working on now for addressing challenges in urban streams? One of the things that we do in partnership with the Cumberland River Compact also is the adoption stream program and, and you guys facilitate that for us, which is um, is really a good way to get just, just the everyday citizen to get out there and, and make contact. I think that that's important. It's one thing to sit and watch, you know, and listen and, and learn about it on the news. But once you're out in the environment, it kind of changes things and makes it feel like, you know, this is our, our neighborhood and where we live and, and makes you want to do a better job of taking care of that. So that's a, a really important program. And our tree program that I'm going to let Michael expand upon, but also I think that that is a a really good way to increase imperviousness and, and make Nashville also beautiful, more beautiful. One of the things I'd also add is obviously as a utility, we are all the time putting time, money, and effort into our sanitary sewer system. And I know Metro Water has made and continues to make a large financial commitment to ensure the environmental health of the Cumberland River and its tributaries for future generations. I know right now we're currently modifying our central wastewater treatment plant uh, coming to be called water reclamation facility to be able to treat more sanitary sewage in the, you know, over a day uh, or per day. So there's a lot of, lot of effort going on in that realm. Getting back to the urban forestry, we are working kind of off the general goal set forth by an executive order out of the mayor's office to plant 500,000 trees in Metro by the year 2050. So that's sort of the big picture goal. As I mentioned earlier, getting a robust urban forest is very key to water quality. Uh, one of the reasons for that relates back to your percent imperviousness. And a lot of studies have shown that there are impacts as you see increasing percent imperviousness. So urban forestry can cut into that. Sort of as an aside on that, uh, and it's important for folks to know, and you mentioned earlier how development can be a benefit. Since we adopted our low impact development criteria in Metro Nashville around 2016, we have actually seen that. We've kept up with some of the stats and 
we have found that because a lot of Metro Nashville was developed before there were any stormwater regulations associated with development, that as, as sites have come in and redeveloped and installed the rain gardens and water treatment structures, uh, that actually less runoff is coming from those sites and what does come from those sites has been treated. So, you know, any site that is going in today, any development that is being built, they have to submit plans. Our development services group, they get reviewed to make sure they meet our stormwater management standards. And those standards include certain stormwater quality and stormwater quantity requirements that help make sure that these developments aren't contributing to water quality or water quantity issues. So uh, there is a lot of time and effort that goes into that. And I think that's something that we've seen a lot of benefits from in our watershed. So um, that has been a good program. As far as, um, I guess, addressing some of the other challenges, I think just look to do whatever we can do uh, and think out of the box. I'll mention one program that we have with the uh, police department and marriage groups also involved with this, but uh, they have certain technology in their helicopters that can detect thermal images in water. So we will actually at times fly with them uh, to identify possible illicit discharges in our stream with the thought being illicits will have a little bit higher temperature than ambient water. And we have, thankfully, we've not found many things, but I do think over the years we have found a few things that we otherwise wouldn't have found. You know, that's something that we're able to do at little to no expense to Metro because they're, they're needing the flight time and uh, it's just worked out really well. And we're just all the time looking to do things uh, that make good sense uh, and, and are best practices for the city to try to identify uh, impacts to our streams. Well, if you ever need someone to join you on the helicopter, that sounds like a lot of fun. And that's a really cool program. That's really neat that you all are doing that. So for people who are listening and are excited about protecting urban streams, what are some of the things that you want people to take away about what they and their community can do to help? I think getting involved in any way, getting out and, and spending time outside and get on the greenways and get your families out. Um, those are those are good starters. We also have a program called Tennessee Smart Yards that Julie Burbiglia in our office facilitates. That is a, a program that talks about, you know, what you do at home and how that impacts the environment and your runoff from your property. Um, and as a homeowner, you learn what decisions you can make, you know, as far as like even how high should your grass be when it cut, when you cut it to, you know, that, that makes a difference in uh, infiltration and um, when you should apply fertilizers and sh you should get a soil test and those, the, all that information that you don't necessarily know when you buy a home, but it's, it's good things to think about. You can think about where your water runs when it, when it rains, you know, I mean, that's good for, for flooding and for, um, you know, being mindful of, of what goes into the creeks nearby your house. I would, I guess, just from a very, maybe a 30,000 foot summary, uh, I think just keeping in mind that anything that is left exposed to rainwater or runoff is going to get into our streams. Um, I know a lot of the ways we work with facilities on issues is just getting pollutants undercover where they will not be exposed to runoff. And then the other thing that I would mention is, and it, it may seem clear, but sometimes we run into people who aren't necessarily aware of this. In our highly urbanized areas where you're looking at mainly buildings and pavement, just realizing that that runoff does run to our storm sewer system and to our streams. Uh, sometimes in the very core downtown areas, people may think that goes to our wastewater treatment plant, but that, uh, that runoff goes to a separate system in most of the areas and does route to our stream. So I think just generally having an awareness of whatever you leave out is that it, that is exposed to stormwater could create stormwater issues and just practicing a little bit of extra care of keeping any such materials away from runoff and away from rainfall would do a great deal of good. 
Definitely. And if you can find a storm drain in your street or in your neighborhood, realizing that's kind of the last point that that water has before it's essentially into the, the streams that we have around here. So to end with a fun question, I know you guys get out in the waterways a lot. I know, Mary, you get to walk the streams. What is your favorite urban stream in Nashville? Might be a tough question, I know. <laughs> that is a tough one. So I don't know if I can even answer it. So I have like nostalgically I love the Harpeth because that's like I grew up on the Harpeth and going out and getting in that getting in boats out there um but I think my most eye-opening was White's Creek watershed and so I have to pick the whole watershed but it's beautiful and there's so many uh wonderful things that we've gotten to see you know just it's just it's really aesthetically beautiful but there's also uh, a really good high uh, level of biodiversity uh, as compared to some of the other streams and so I think that that would probably be my uh, my favorite. It is interesting in listening to Mary's answer in that when you look at the various metro streams to me it strikes me as how different they all are. Um, very seldom do you get it I mean they all have their own unique characteristics and I think in that regard, it's a little bit difficult to single one out, at least for me. But I would say, it, to me, it's the Cumberland. Uh, the Cumberland has seen a lot of challenges historically. When you go back several decades and see what was finding its way into the Cumberland, uh, even you know within Metro and from upstream, and now seeing, you know, the, the condition of the Cumberland and the fact several miles uh, beginning downtown has been, been delisted by the state and just seeing the success story that the Cumberland is. I know that may be sort of a cop out answer, but I, I just look at the Cumberland as, uh, as a real success story. And I think as, uh, you know, the years go by, I think it's going to become more and more of an amenity uh, with more recreational use. And I just, I, I think it's a great story. That's awesome. And I, it sounds like from Michael that they're all unique. They're all different. So you have to go to every urban stream in Nashville. I think that's the answer. <laughs> Everyone needs a, to go to everyone. <laughs> there's a favorite for like all sorts of scenarios. So yes, exactly. Well, White's Creek is definitely a good one. And I know it's got some good accessible points too along greenways where you can kind of get in there, see what critters you're seeing. It's a, it's a great one. help pay it forward during the big payback. The Cumberland River Compact works to implement projects that help reduce the impact of extreme weather events. With the help of volunteers, we planted over 2,500 trees in neighborhoods impacted by last year's tornado. Your support during the big payback this year will help us to coordinate litter cleanup events to address debris left in the wake of recent flooding. Make your donation today at thebigpayback.org slash the compact. Awesome, Gray. Well, thanks for joining me today. Do you mind just introducing yourself and what you do here at the Compact? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for for having me here to talk about um, Browns Creek. Uh, so my name is Gray Perry. Uh, I'm a program manager with the Cumberland River Compact. I've uh, been on for about three years, three and a half years full time, and then one year as an AmeriCorps member as well. And I do a lot of different things. I do a lot of the volunteer programming here at the Compact as well as a lot of our stream cleanups. But I also do some of our uh, watershed modeling and uh, write some of our watershed-based plans and 319 grants, uh, which is what we use to do big uh, major stream restoration projects uh, across the Cumberland River Basin. Today we've been talking about urban streams and in Davidson County, we've got thousands of miles of urban streams and there's one close to a lot of people, depending on where you live. And Browns Creek is just one of those urban waterways that we have. And it's got some unique water quality challenges. So could you describe what some of the challenges are in the Browns Creek watershed? Browns Creek, um, the main stem of it is, which goes kind of past the fairgrounds and through uh, a little bit of uh, downtown Nashville. Um, it's paired for pathogens like E. coli, uh, it's got a lot of uh, nutrient impairments uh, from phosphorus and nitrogen. It's also got um, oil and grease impairments and habitat alterations, which can be 
anything from like streamside habitat alterations, like no riparian buffers, uh, no vegetated buffers along the side, and in-stream habitat alterations, which could be anything from a, a concrete conveyance instead of a nice natural stream channel bed, or maybe it's incised uh, stream where it started to erode downward. And uh, some of the other smaller tributaries that make up the headwaters of Browns Creek, so that's the West Fork, uh, or the East Fork, the Middle Forks of Browns Creek, uh, they're impaired for the similar things. So uh, the West Forks impaired for E. coli nutrients, uh, the Middle Forks impaired for E. coli nutrients and habitat alterations, and then the East Fork is uh, impaired for the same thing that the main stem is, which is going to be E. coli nutrients, habitat alterations, and oil and grease. Awesome. So a lot of different challenges and a lot of different opportunities to work on those in Browns Creek. And you mentioned briefly the watershed base plan and how we look at an issue like Browns Creek and not just look at the actual stream, but look at the whole watershed. So what is a watershed base plan and how does that then inform the type of work that we do in a watershed like Browns Creek? Yeah, so I guess to kind of go back a little bit, you know, we apply for funds to do these projects through uh, the Tennessee Department of Agriculture's uh, 319 grant, which is a non-point source pollution uh, grant. So that's can be used for anything, but a lot of what we use uh, ours for are for uh, like stream bank of restoration or uh, large major bank uh, restoration projects, uh, big bioretention projects and things like that. The thing is, is that when we implement these kind of projects, we want to make sure that we're not just looking at one stream. We want to look, uh, make sure we're looking at the entire watershed as a whole, because we don't want someone to, you know, put down a large bioretention cell in the bottom of Browns Creek and then have a huge development go upstream and just kind of um, kind of uh, cancel it out, so to speak. So a watershed-based plan is a kind of plan where it's a uh, analysis of all the streams in the watershed, all the land use, both current and then projected as well, and then uh, to, to kind of look at some projects that would help mitigate um, all of the kind of issues within that watershed over a specific timeline. So it could be over a five-year period, a 10-year period, just to make sure that all the restoration activities that are going throughout the entire watershed are all working in unison to kind of help address these issues rather than just having piecemeal projects try to address these issues. So these watershed-based plans really help kind of lay the stage for the restoration work that we do, and they're pretty technical. So could you describe kind of all the different sources of data that you use to put together a watershed-based plan? I know you've written, uh, didn't write the one for Browns Creek, but have written several others. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different things that go into writing a watershed-based plan. So the first kind of part we'll do is um, a land analysis and analysis of the impairments that are in the streams. So we'll not only look at... Um, you know, data from TDAG, maybe stream sampling data or identification of impairments, or also, you know, data from the city as well. We'll uh, pull land use data. So we'll pull stuff from um, like land cover, which is going to look at impervious surface versus like natural areas. And we'll do an analysis of that. We have uh, data from EPA that we pull to as well to kind of look at land use. Uh, will go out in the field too as well and, you know, hike through these streams and kind of identify some uh, issues that happen. So that may be looking for those in-stream habitat alterations, could be looking at uh, erosion sites that are, um, you know, causing a lot of issues uh, or maybe just uh, uh, local land use problems as well. Let's, let's say there's no riparian buffer zones, you know, hiking through those streams really helps us identify the quality of those streams as well. And so we'll pair all these uh, like this, uh, these types of data together in a report. So we'll, you know, kind of compile some stuff through ArcGIS and that land use, um, all that TDEC data and all that in-person data. And we'll just kind of write a report about it and say, hey, here's what we're noticing or all of our issues. Then we'll um, look at some needed recommendations of some best management practices to, to kind of address some of the impairments that are there. And then, you know, we'll come up with some kind of different costs and scenarios to implement all of this all together as a whole to restore the entire watershed. That's great. And I really do enjoy looking at these watershed-based plans because it's really cool to see the science behind 
where we're doing our work and why. And sometimes it can seem like, well, why did we pick that location? But when you go back to that watershed based plan, and like you said, it's making sure that all of the efforts are working in unison to address these issues in the watershed and, and they're coming from so many different places. And so we have to do a variety of different efforts to make an impact over time. And so, you know, we're in an early phase of Browns Creek, but excited to keep moving through with the Browns Creek restoration. Well, thank you, Greg, for joining me today. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on and, and just kind of go on and on about watershed-based plans, but uh, happy to talk about them anytime. Well, first, Will, could you introduce yourself and what you do at the Compact? Yeah, my name is Will Kaplanor. Um, I've been at the Compact now for over five years. Originally as a program manager, um, managing a couple different restoration tile, uh, type projects, and now I'm actually overseeing our field work. So I am our field operations supervisor. So I oversee our restoration type work. I oversee the Route Nashville field work. I basically oversee all of the all of the field work uh, within the organization. Spend a lot of time outside with your job. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So typically, you know, if I have a five uh, a five-day work week, four of those days will be out in the field, one of those in the office. Um, That's awesome. Well, I know one of the projects that you've been working on a lot is in Browns Creek, and that project has a lot of different restoration components. Could you describe what the projects are that we're working on in Browns Creek? Yeah, yeah. So the, the issue with Browns Creek uh, is tied to water quality, tied to urbanization. Um, so all of the uh, restoration type activities that we have are all kind of targeted to, to remedy some of these issues. So the three main issues uh, that we experience in Browns Creek are pathogens, nutrients, and in-stream habitat alteration. So, you know, pet waste stations uh, kind of target that pathogen issue uh, with nutrients the way we target that, you know, most of the time nutrients are, you know, they come off of uh, lawns or golf courses, anything that gets kind of overly fertilized. So uh, rain gardens, uh, we're planting um, approximately 30 rain gardens. So like, you know, almost 2000 square feet of rain gardens. And so, uh, you know, you, you install those in an area that, that captures stormwater runoff, sinks it, uh, and it naturally gets into the water table and it kind of uses the nutrients that way. We are also, uh, to combat nutrients, uh, we have something called a depave project. So we basically targeted a big dilapidated unused parking lot in the area, and we're going to be transforming that into green space. So it's currently hard capped with, um, you know, just decaying rubble of asphalt and so we're going to cut remove that and do a lot of rain gardens a lot of green space trees stuff like that so those are some really good ways to kind of remedy nutrients and then with in-stream habitat alteration that tends to be from kind of outdated engineering techniques so um, you know think of straight piping water down to the stream from a storm drain or think of like hard armoring the banks with uh, walls stuff like that so those are a little bit tougher to remedy um, so we, you know, we can't really go with the in-stream habitat alteration, but, um, but yeah, so on top of those other things I mentioned, uh, this also has a large, uh, educational component. And then we're also, uh, to combat both pathogens and nutrients, uh, we're planting a more robust riparian buffer. So the vegetation along a stream, um, this is kind of the last, uh, last stretch of defense that a stream has. So, you know, the, the thicker, the more robust of native plants you can have in that, the healthier stream is going to be. So we're planting um, an acre of riparian buffer forest. Um, we also have stream cleanups going on. And then kind of uh, the other really cool process that actually is in the stream, you know, targeting uh, erosion, even though we don't have a high sediment issue here, there is still some pretty significant erosion. So we're stabilizing um, 400 feet of, of eroded kind of incised bank. So yeah, th those are the big, uh, the big kind of projects that we have going on within this larger umbrella. That's awesome. And I think these projects are really cool because they do require such a multifaceted approach. Like you can't just do one thing. We need some of the work that we're doing, but we also need all the residents of Browns Creek area to, to pitch in as well. So it's really cool that it kind of encompasses all of that. And you mentioned a little bit about the bank stabilization process. And I know that's a process that we have done in other projects before, and we're kind of trying out some new techniques as well. Could you describe that process and what we're working on in Browns Creek? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we have oversaw maybe, you know, upwards of dozens of the large in-stream uh, restoration. So this looks like us hiring, um, you know, engineers, uh, really experienced contractors, and they are 
you know, going at banks that are sometimes 25 feet uh, straight up and down of in-size banks. So that's something we've been doing for a while, but we, uh, here the past couple of years, we've been kind of trying to kind of expand our knowledge on this. So we're doing what we would classify as minor bank stabilization. So this would be in, you know, much smaller, more manageable streams. We're not really going to target anything over like five feet or so of eroded in-size banks. But um, really the, uh, the idea here is to, um, a first process would be to correct the slope, right? Because if we're, uh, you know, if, if we have an incised bank, most of the time that slope or that bank rather is just straight up and down, doesn't have uh, the correct slope. So we try to correct that, bring that more to like two to one, three to one. And then um, sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes if uh, the bank is incised and uh, you can kind of picture that as like the bank looks like it's overhanging where the uh, soil touches the water. It's actually kind of like eroded in and those banks can collapse. Um, so kind of at the toe of that bank, one thing we can do is install these things called cedar revetments or coir logs. Um, the idea behind that is let's get some natural woody material in there. Um, you know, it's going to take three to four years to decay. Um, and by the time that's decayed, we will have come back in and planted native vegetation. So it's kind of a temporary hold. So yeah, you get those things in the bank, it kind of immediately uh, stops erosion in that exact area. Um, and then uh, that, that following planting season, you plant it and then within two or three years, those roots will have taken over and your uh, log has degraded into kind of a, um, a standard bank. So um, yeah, this, we've done maybe four to five of these projects now. Um, we've had one of these fail, failed due to not having enough riparian buffer vegetation to attach to. Um, but yeah, we found that this is a pretty, it's definitely hands-on, but it's, it's a pretty good way of getting at some streams that aren't really within the realm of, it's not really necessary to bring out an engineer or, you know, you don't really have the funds to invest it into something larger like that. So um, yeah, we're, we're excited about this. We've actually, I recently went this past winter and got uh, a little bit more training on some techniques by um, uh, North Carolina State. They have some really cool restoration programs. So it's something we're, we're really trying to expand on. We see the need in Nashville. There are tons of people that have streams in their backyard and there are tons of people that are experiencing erosion issues. I like to tell people this is not really going to help with flooding, unfortunately. Um, that's, you know, much more widespread of work that needs to be done there. But this can help with people that are losing property that, you know, their bank's kind of crumbling into the water. It, it, it can help with that. Yeah, that that bank stabilization is really cool. I got the chance to go out. I guess it was been maybe a year now up in Mansker's Creek and carry oh, yeah. those big cedar revetments. And it's really neat to see that process and then to come back, you know, a few months later, six months later, a year later, and you start to see the impact of of doing that work. And it's really cool that we're able to to do that in Browns Creek. And, and so thinking about kind of what, you know, we're doing these different projects right now, the 30 rain gardens, the petway stations and the, and the stream restoration, what is the potential impact of this type of project? What are we trying to achieve with this? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'll go back to kind of a, a really good point you made earlier where, you know, this is like really widespread um, to make any kind of impact. There are a lot of things going on. The, the best way that I think about this is the characterization of point source pollution versus non-point source pollution, right? Point source, think of like leaky sewage infrastructure, right? If you, if you have an issue, you can go directly to that um, leaky pipe. You can stop the issue and your, um, your issues that you had are, are kind of fixed. Uh, Non-point source pollution is not that way, right? It's a lot of people contributing to the issue. It's, um, you know, many yards over fertilizing or fertilizing before a rain or, you know, a whole neighborhood not picking up pet waste, stuff like that. So, you know, uh, what can and should residents do? It really is um, A, become kind of educated in, in what's going on, know the issues, know that, you know, we're told that 90% or something like that of all uh, E. coli we find in our streams are tied back to canine pet waste. Know that, you know, know what rain gardens can do. Know the importance of a riparian buffer, why having trees along a stream are so important. Know why, um, uh, you know, why keeping your stream clean is important. You know, kind of all of these uh, little at-home things, they really can make an impact. You know, one, one rain garden or, you know, one quarter acre of riparian buffer planting. Is that going to make like a measurable impact? Probably not. But 
if you know we can get this in mass kind of the way that we've had this set up within this grant you can um, kind of detect impacts so what we're trying to do we're trying to go with these three water quality impairments that are listed by um, by the state that are federally listed rather so you know like i mentioned earlier in stream habitat alteration it's going to be really tough to um, to do anything um, you know we're, we're more so kind of living with that but nutrients and pathogens we can absolutely bring those levels down right you can be much smarter about when we fertilize we can be much smarter about what we plant and what we plant where and then for pathogens you know we can kind of go at the pet waste issues like we talk about and then you know we can also detect uh, leaky sewage infrastructure stuff like that so there, there are a lot of things to do but you know it's 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 more so becoming educated in how what we do on our property is so closely tied into water quality um, and how, you know, kind of if a whole area or a whole city or neighborhood kind of um, goes at it together, you really can make a positive impact. We need everybody to do their little small part to make an impact. And I think Browns Creek is a cool urban stream too, because it's pretty accessible and people probably drive by it and don't realize exactly where they are. If you're over by the fairgrounds, you're seeing Browns Creek. If you are in Battlemont Park, there's really great access to Browns Creek. And so it's really a cool urban stream that probably touches a lot more people than you might realize. So I'd say another action people can do is find out what your local stream is, find out where Browns Creek is. Maybe you've seen it, you just haven't realized it. And making that connection, I think is really important to, to wanting to protect the quality of water. Yeah, yeah, very, very good point. And, you know, to expand on that, I've, from me being out there, I've seen, there's a ton of historical things that come along with Browns Creek too. You know, there used to be an old rail line that would take people to a zoo back in that area. And you can find old kind of remnants of that. Um, I talked to a property owner that her great grandparents, you know, originally owned a farm in that area. And she's still kind of in that, you know, so just kind of the city growing up around that stream. There's a lot of history to it. And, and there's some really cool things. You know, we always are finding outdated kind of old dams. You know, one in particular I found was used um, before uh, we had refrigeration. It was used to keep milk cold. Uh, so there are some really cool things you find and, and, and seeing some of the history within the stream, it kind of... Uh, paints Nashville a little bit different of a light. I love those connections between history and water. There's always so many. And every time I talk to somebody, I learn new ones. So I, oh, I love definitely. that. Definitely. And so talking about this Browns Creek project, we know it's just kind of beginning and we're going to be continuing to work at this because like we've said, there's so many things that we need to be mm -hmm. doing. So after we kind of finish this first phase, what does the next phase of the restoration in Browns Creek watershed look like? Yeah, yeah, very good question. So it's 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 really nice the way um, you're required to write these grants. You're not just allowed to go in and pick out a stream and go, we're going to work here. You basically have to have a, a larger watershed based plan written. So, you know, uh, a smaller stream would be within a larger watershed generally. And so, uh, yeah, we, we basically have it written out four or five phases uh, to, to, to work on Browns Creek. So right now we're in West Fork, Browns Creek. Um, that's going to, I think we have like a year or so left on that grant. And then, yeah, I, I think we'll probably be um, applying to do kind of extend this work into other stretches of Browns. So yeah, we're, we're, Strictly focusing right now on the West Fork, you know, it's a little bit on the southernmost portion of Browns, but, you know, we'll get closer into the city where there's the big rail yard, eventually, hopefully, uh, East Fork, there's a lot of work to be done there. So I think it's going to be a lot of kind of uh, expanding what we're doing and kind of spreading it into further reaches of the watershed. Great. So people can stay tuned for more exciting opportunities in Browns Creek. and. Yeah. I know we have the DePave project that you talked about. Could you describe a little bit about what's going to be happening there at the fairgrounds and whether or not people can get involved with that project? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is right across from the fairgrounds. It's I'm not even sure what the property used to be. It used to be, I don't know, it used to have buildings or something there. It's been knocked down. It's kind of fenced and roped off now. But yeah, the idea would be to convert it into green space that the community can kind of use. But as of now, um, it's not set in stone yet, but we are planning on having uh, large volunteer events every Saturday in June. So the way the DePave works is we go in there beforehand, we cut the asphalt into manageable pieces, and then it is uh, pried up with volunteers. And so this is like a huge volunteer day that we do. We have like DJs uh, and music and food and stuff like that. And, you know, we'll have 75 to 100 people or so. So um, yeah, we're going to have these really great volunteer opportunities with this that we would, you know, welcome everyone to come out. Um, it's a really, really cool event. Yeah, it's definitely a satisfying type of volunteer event because you're seeing the pavement being pulled up and yeah. being replaced. So 
Yeah, so much of environmental work is, you know, you do something and you wait a few years to see anything. You know, you plant these seedlings and you're waiting a couple of years for them to pop up or you do bank stabilization and you're waiting a couple of years for it to, you know, fill in with sediment and grow up. But uh, yeah, this feels pretty cool because it's uh, it's it's pretty immediate uh, for the environmental world. It, 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 you can really see the before and afters on it look amazing. Yeah, awesome. Well, we're excited for that and we'll make sure everyone has the details on it. Well, thank you for joining me today. There are many ways that you can take care of urban streams. First, you can simply learn the name of the closest stream near you with the Cumberland River Compact's tool, iCreek. Just plug in an address or a location and learn about the stream near you. You can also commit to steward a stream with our Adopt-A-Stream program. Our stream adopters help us care for the thousands of miles of streams in Davidson County and beyond. Or come out and volunteer with us. Our Browns Creek project will have several volunteer opportunities coming up where you can get involved in this work. Over several weekends in June, you can come out and help us depave an old parking lot near Browns Creek. Check out our volunteer calendar for all the upcoming opportunities at cumberlandrivercompact.org volunteer.